It's Thursday, March 8th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Jason Moser, and for Motley Fool Pro, Jeff Fisher. Gentlemen, happy Thursday. Hey, Chris. Hey. hey. Uh, we're going to do a round of yes, no, maybe so. This is where the guys uh, each come to the table with a stock they like, a stock they don't like, and one they are on the fence about. Uh, about. Um, let's start with the yes stocks. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. What's your yes stock? A company that we all know and love, or should love, is <laughs> Intel. And what I love about why, it, why should I love Intel? I know what, it. He's going to tell you. What. Well, I'll tell you right now. What I love about Intel the past three years or so, during which time Pro has owned it, is the market, or Wall Street analysts, have been neutral to bearish on it year after year, expecting earnings to flatline every year. And instead, Intel has had three record years 2011 was their strongest year ever with mm-hmm. revenue up 24%, earnings up 20%. They sold more PC microprocessors in 2011 than they ever had before, which might surprise you given that all the all the talk is about smartphones and tablets. Yep. But their PC client group grew revenue 17% and average prices on these chips increased. Now, why is that? Because the emerging markets now account for two out of every three incremental PC units sold. So emerging markets are are now the largest PC market in the world. China is the largest PC market, representing 20% of all PC demand. And in China, only about 30% of homes have a PC. I was surprised it it was that high, frankly. 30% of homes have a PC compared to more than 90% here in the U.S. Now, the stock is trading close to a 52-week high. Does does the valuation, I mean, everything you just said sounds great, but just from the valuation standpoint of the stock, you still like it? The valuation still holds up. Shares are trading at about 11 times earnings, so below a market multiple. They yield 3.2%, and Intel right now is investing in all sorts of, of uh, initiatives to keep growing. They're building new, brand new, the world's first 14 nanometer fab plants to mass produce even smaller chips, you know, following Moore's law, of course. They're investing in smartphones. They'll have their first smartphone, Intel powered smartphone built by Lenovo come out in China this year. They are driving uh, investment in 70 different designs of Ultrabooks. Intel came up with this slim Ultrabook idea, yep. which is basically a MacBook Air, but uh, now you can run Windows on it. Hey, great. Yay. <laughs> but 70 designs are coming out this year. Now, that is a risk that uh, Intel has put quite a bit behind Ultrabook. We, we need to see it, see it do well. And I think it will, if not this year, then by next year as prices come down on these, when you can get a really slim, light, instant-on notebook to run Windows, which is still, obviously, the dominant operating system in the world, people are going to buy that at the right price. Well, we were just talking before the taping, Jason. I mean, you've you've ordered your new iPad. I have. Um, and, I was very excited to and, do that. And you're a guy, you've talked about this before, you have plenty of gadgets in your home. What about the, the Ultrabook? Is that a gadget that interests you at all, or is that something where you're just like, you know what, I don't, even a, a, a gadget guy like me doesn't need one? So I, I will say this, you know, the more th- the more devices I use, the more devices I try out, and I mean, I try it out, you know, the Nook and the Kindle Fire, and yesterday we even tried the Motorola Zoom, I think it is, when we were doing this coverage of the Apple, uh, of the iPad release. It all, I, I the iPad just to me seems to be the best device out there. The movement towards tablets is real. Uh, I, I have a hard time really seeing in the long run how anybody's going to really hang with that product. And you have a company with with Apple that's just developing and innovating all the time. So 
that's sort of the benchmark, and everybody's kind of trying to keep up with them. And Apple still has such tiny market share, which is a plus for Intel, of course, with Windows dominating market share. Yep. Windows 8 is due out probably this year. Are we sure about that? <laughs> you know, I, I we thought last year was the year it was coming out. <laughs> it's touch and go. That's why they don't call it by year anymore, Windows 2007 or whatever. When exactly. did they stop that? 97, 98? Smart move by yep. the folks at Microsoft. <laughs> Windows sometime or another. Uh, Jason, what is your Yes stock? Yeah, the Yes stock has you jumping for joy, Chris. It's Joy Global. And I think I've talked about this one before here, but it's uh, surface mining equipment and underground mining machinery. They sell these you know, machines that do all the mining. So their primary focus is on coal, mm-hmm. which I think gets a bad rap for for most because it's you know not the cleanest energy source in the world but you know neither is oil so uh, while projections are for coal usage in the United States to remain relatively flat in the foreseeable future there is a lot of demand still for coal in overseas and developing economies particularly places like China and India and so Joy Global derives about two thirds of their revenue from their coal mining equipment. And so, if you look at India, for example, India's electricity demand grew by 9% last year. China's grew by 14%. And they're not producing enough coal in those countries to keep up with that demand. So, they're having to import a lot of coal. And that's where Joy Global kind of comes into play, uh, being able to supply the equipment to get that done. And it's not just uh, thermal coal, either. It's metallurgical coal, which is needed for producing steel. And that steel is to help build out these infrastructures for these developing economies. And so, from that perspective, you see, I think, a real long uh, tail here with, with coal. The uh, International Energy Agency is, is forecasting about a 65% increase in global coal usage over the next 20 years, which you know is significant when you consider Significantly it's discouraging. Relatively <laughs> flat here. Um, but I think that Joy Global has continued to put themselves in a good position to benefit from this. They just wrapped up a couple of acquisitions recently with Latorno and with IMM. IMM gave them entry into the China market with the market leader yep. producer there. Uh, so a lot of encouraging things. The stock just took a little bit of a hit uh, off of earnings because of uh, just some some product uh, issues with one of these acquisitions. They had a miss. A little bit of a miss, but yeah. you know, it wasn't anything that uh, affects them in the <laughs> long term. Call it like it so. is. <laughs> I think the stock actually represents a decent deal today and uh, – so that's my yes stock. Um, we talk all the time about competitive landscapes. And when you look at a company like Joy Global, in the competitive landscape is a company called Caterpillar. Just a little. Just so, a little. Uh, I mean, th- th- Caterpillar doesn't give you pause? Caterpillar doesn't give me pause. I mean, I, I should take that back. It gives me a little pause. But you know, Caterpillar, obviously, is significantly bigger than Joy Global. But Joy Global is also very focused on this particular market in uh, coal, particularly. And, and so Caterpillar focuses on a wider array of, of uh, machinery. And so while, yes, they are a formidable competitor, uh, Joy Global, with its more specialized nature, I think offers a compelling option uh, for, for their customers. And so, it's, it's again, it's not a winner-take-all scenario. And, uh, you know, over time, Joy Global has been able to pick up a little bit of market share and continue to do well. Jason, do you know where their name came from? Well, I have a. I don't know where the Joy Global so name just, came from, but I know that it seems like the least appropriately named company yeah, in the world. It's, it's, Whenever uh, I hear Joy Global, I always think they're a gaming company or some some sort of it, fun. They have an interesting history no. of, of uh, <laughs> mining equipment. They have an interesting history of how the company developed. I'm not really sure of the actual. It it started as a gaming company. Maybe, maybe so. No, no. 
They spun off. They've been around a long time. We'll hit Wikipedia once we're done taping it. We'll figure out how <laughs> right. uh, the entomology of uh, Joy Global. Let's move over to the no stocks. Uh, Jeff Fisher, I'll start with you. What's your no stock? I'm sorry, Patrick Byrne, CEO of Overstock, but Overstock <laughs> is my no stock. In 2008, it was one of the first companies I red-thumbed, down-thumbed in Motley Fool caps. Yep. I, I closed that out too soon. It was around 16 then. The shares are around $5 right now. I should have shorted it in real life as well. The problem with Overstock, well, well, most recent problem is they lost money in the fourth quarter, which was quite shocking, the big holiday quarter. They, they lost money. They now are down to, a, to about $90 million in cash, and they have $77 million in accounts payable. So they're not exactly hitting it out of the ballpark. Um, I, I've never used Overstock, and, and maybe I'm just one tiny part of why they're struggling. But <laughs> it, it, is it still this essentially discount retailer where you go to Overstock, you know, instead of going shopping on Amazon or Walmart.com or something like that, or even eBay, you would go to Overstock and there would be just things at a, at a huge discount? It is, is, that- it is yep. And it's... Uh, it's a significant discount, maybe not huge, but a meaningful discount. Although yeah. it's it's comparable in a lot of cases to to Amazon. So in that case, why would you use Overstock when Amazon's customer service is so much better? But they did recently branch into cars and travel and insurance. Really? And Overstock they, yeah, cars? Just, yeah, they're all new tabs on the site, and they have a B two B tab, which is uh, I haven't heard that term in a long time. Yeah. Business to business. But you, I was checking out this morning. The only two things on the main page there are, are two uh, cooking pans. So they're they're trying to <laughs> they're trying to sell to to it's kitchen kitchen uh, uh, kitchenware. But uh, it looks like a reach. But anyway, to to focus on the the fundamentals, the company is still under an SEC investigation for um, possibly violating accounting rules going way back uh, uh, the past ten years. Uh, during various years. So even though the shares have fallen from 16 to 5 in yep. the past year, if any any fools listening are thinking about nibbling on those shares, I I just wouldn't. I was going to say the stock is at like a 9-year low. You don't you, you think this is the classic it's not a value play, it's a value trap? <laughs> I think it's a value trap. I think Patrick Byrne the CEO it, has too many interests outside of running this business. He's of course they're suing Goldman Sachs among other investment bankers for manipulating the share price. Maybe that's a new revenue stream. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Goldman has some cash. It's, can... it's not sustainable, but that could be an injection. Of I've got to interrupt this for some breaking news. Our producer, Matt Greer, has just informed us. I'm assuming you got this from Wiki, but wherever, the founder of Joy Global is Joseph Francis Joy, hence the name. Hence Joy. Excellent. Hence Joy Global. Global. I, I, See? I thought there might be a name, a name Thanks, behind Matt. it. Thank you, Mac. Uh, one other thing about Overstock is... They, they blamed part of last year's problems on Google because Google penalized them in the in the search category yeah. for their marketing. Why did they do that? Because Overstock had broken the rules and, and was offering colleges and university campuses a 10% discount if they would link to Overstock on their pages, <laughs> which, you know, the more yeah. pages that you're linked to, the higher you, you turn up in, in search results. So what happened is when students were, were looking for a table or a chair, right. Overstock would come up first for a long time. Well, Google caught on to that and pulled the, pulled the plug on that. Sounds like Overstock might benefit from an intervention from Dr. Phil. It just sounds like there's a lot of blame. <laughs> yeah, there are too many, too many roaches crawling around. Um, 
Jason Moser, you're no stock. Yeah, no stock. I, I have a hard time really coming around on this one. The company reported record profits in 2011, but I've still got to give GM the thumbs down here. And the latest headline doesn't really do anything to really steer me in the other direction here. I think they're shutting down plant uh, for the Volt production here for the next five weeks due to a lack of demand, which, you know, I mean, that's that's a big deal. I mean, they've been placing a lot of money, yeah. I think, on the success of this Volt. And so to have it to have it perform this way is a shame. And it's not, to be fair, it's not just the Volt. I think that electric cars in general are really having a tough time. And Nissan Leaf has been having the same same challenges. And, uh, you know, from the auto show in January, it seems to me that the the more success is going to be seen with, with cars that are focused on improving hybrid technology, so plug-in hybrids, for example. Yep. Uh, but shutting down that factory for five weeks is obviously a big problem. It seems like they're going back to that old GM model of of SUVs and uh, trucks, which we know how that worked out last time when, when gas prices shot through the roof, and, and there's just no way you can avoid that happening again. Uh, the company still be – they have what? The U.S. government owns about 500 million shares still – which is about thirty percent of the company, and you know I think the break-even point there is about fifty-eight bucks. <laughs> You're saying we shouldn't <laughs> which hold is our breath. Better than a double from today, so I have a little bit of uh, skepticism where that's concerned. It's a, it's a capital loss. It, it, well, it could be. Yeah, they could probably yeah. just, they can lower yeah, their carry tax that one bill. right forward, couldn't they? <laughs> but uh, you know, and then you look at their balance sheet; they still have thirty-five billion dollars in uh, pension and, and other post-retirement benefit shortfall. Yeah. So that's thirty-five billion dollars that they're going to have to figure out how to whittle down, and it doesn't. It's not like they still don't deal with the UAW every day, which is a total wild card. So I think it trades at five and a half times earnings for a reason, and uh, I'm not going to be buying it. Uh, doesn't the government tax break, um, it, it, doesn't that continue for another couple of years? Yeah, they got a little bit of a gimme there. It was kind of one of those exemptions made for GM, yeah. which was a good thing for GM. And I think you know uh, companies like Ford that, that didn't have to depend on the, on the bailout, for example, felt like they were slighted, uh, you know, a little bit of a uh, competitive disadvantage there. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't want a company where I'm having to, to depend on a tax break. You know, I want I want a solid company that's going to be benefiting from new and innovative products. And I just don't think GM is a. It's it's interesting. Uh, do you know what the the invoice is on on the Volt? Jason? Forty forty thousand. It's 40, about a forty thousand dollar car. So yeah. because Tesla, of course, is selling out their cars before they make them right. at, at a higher price point. So maybe these are just too these cars are too rich for the general population. But on the high end. Tesla has generated interest and buzz. And Maybe so. And, I mean, Tesla, you do see with the Model S, uh, and their, their price range goes anywhere from about 47000 all the way up to close to 100000 yeah. depending on that battery pack you want. So, yeah, I think it probably does attract a little bit of a different consumer. All right. Let's wrap up with the maybe-so stocks, the stocks that you guys are on the fence about. Jeff Fisher, what do you got? K-12. <clears throat> this is a rule-breaker company, and Brian Hinman, an analyst here at The Fool, Pro Analyst pitched it to Pro as well, and I'm on the maybe so about it. It's about a $21 stock. Really interesting business, and the CEO, Ron Packard, I should say, has has stopped by at The Fool and spoken to the company as well. It's an education company, right? Exactly. What K-12 is creating and has been creating for a long time, 10 years plus, are virtual public schools where students K-12 through can learn at home through the computer and the reason for this is one reason for this is they they can cut the cost of of an education K through 12 by about 35 to 40 percent, and so states are willing to pay for this for students who, for whatever reason, going to the traditional public school isn't working out, mm-hmm. and they need more one one on one work at home 
or for parents who want to teach their kids at home but need a curriculum. So they're they're selling their curriculum to schools as well as the whole the whole package if you just want to learn at home using their virtual public school. Um, so what what is your hesitation on this? The maybe so is there are so many intricate considerations with a business like this. They need to get funded by the states. Yep. States need to approve them. Then you need to – how do you market <laughs> – And last time I checked, it's not like states in, here in America are flush with cash. <laughs> right. Well, and that, that was one of my first concerns too. And digging deeper, you, you realize, well, what K-12, their, their pitch is that will save you cash. State, yep. We will save you cash per student because the average student K-12 through costs the average state about $11,000 per year. And so if you can cut that down to 8000 or so, great, you're saving money. But my other concern was how do you pitch this to parents? You know, especially K through 12 and where socialization is important. Right. How do you try to convince a parent that they should pull their kid out of the traditional school and just teach them at home on a, on a computer? So that's what I think limits the market size. And right now only less than 0.5% of all students – well, yeah, and, and going back to what we're, what Jason was saying about you know the the lack of demand for you know um, you know the Chevy Volt, it's like hey, at, at some point you you do have to whatever your business is, you have to look at well, where is the demand? And it seems like in this case, it's not it's less a question of demand, but how can they create the demand? How can they because it's yeah. it's not like there's this huge swath of parents who are just looking around for a solution. You you. As you said, exactly. it's like you got to convince you got to convince them that what they're doing with their kids right now is is not the way to go. Yeah, exactly I bet you true. We could probably take an unscientific poll here, and we probably, I imagine we would all uh, probably rather have our kids in an actual school because of those factors you just you know went through there with socialization and just yeah. learning how to deal with people and situations and things like that. So it's you know it's an integral part of growing up, and to, to all of a sudden just stick a kid in front of a computer seems like it could. And some long-term dramatic effects. That's true. And, and to be fair, K-12 does run some physical schools as well, but it's only a handful. So for the most part, they're virtual. And the other concern is they, they the way I view it, they compete with their customer. If, if their customer is the state, they're trying to get states to sign off on these right. programs. They're trying to convince the state that they can do as good or better a job as the state at a lower cost. Jason, what's your maybe so stock? I'm on the fence about Wells Fargo. You know, I've talked about big banks before, and I'm not the biggest fan of them. I feel like the mentality has shifted a little bit more towards the smaller banks and growth opportunities Matt, there. But Mac, can we get Warren Buffett on the phone? <laughs> I, was, I was just well, going to. I'm going to go in. through. He's, he's I'm going to go through some good and some bad. <laughs> so I'm working on it. <laughs> So, in all honesty, I mean, look at Wells Fargo, I think, and and so the good, you know, you look at that 2008 acquisition of Wachovia, it basically doubled their footprint, gave them exposure to a new side of the country. We now have Wells Fargo here in Virginia, which is, uh, I never saw them before, but, uh, you know, so they spread that footprint, and at the same time, they maintain the lowest cost of funds of any of the big banks by a significant margin, which essentially just makes them much more profitable. And so that's obviously another good thing. And my third point to everybody here <laughs> is that in 2011, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway bought another cool $1 billion worth of stock, uh, making it you know one of his big four investments for Berkshire. Right. So I have no problem ever, ever following the coattails of someone like that. The bad, I mean, I, I look at something with these big banks, it's really hard to know exactly what they have going on in the hood still. Bank of America and Citigroup seem to be the bigger risks there. Wells Fargo has has done a better job of, of keeping themselves out of the precarious situations. Um, 
you know, the recent news of new fees, I think, is really rubbing people the wrong way. Not to be fair on Wells' side, you know, they're, they're, they're putting a, a new $7 fee checking account out there. But there are a number of ways that you could maintain that checking account and waive the fee. Yeah. Uh, so that's good. I mean, I think that when you look at Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, Wells trades for about 1.7 times tangible book value. Bank of America and Citi trade for 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6 around there. So I the one concern I have with Wells is that it may still be a little bit expensive. I think it may be priced a little optimistically, which gives me some pause. But of all the banks, I mean, the big banks, I think Wells Fargo is by far the biggest quality, the best quality. You're going out to the Berkshire Pathway meeting this year, aren't you? I am, and I'm going to be taking my new iPad with me. <laughs> nice. I'll take a picture and tweet it. Maybe yeah. you can uh, maybe you can talk to Buff and see if he can convince you to plunk down some money for a few shares of Wells Fargo. Somehow or another, I figure if they catch me coming at, at him with an iPad yelling about Wells Fargo, security's going to intervene before something <laughs> yeah. ever really As they happens. Should. <laughs> Listening to Jason, it, it made me think, uh, and I hope this is a good point to make to listeners, that... Investing isn't just about do I buy Wells Fargo or not. It's also do I buy Wells Fargo or MasterCard instead. And it's an either-or situation. So if you're looking at financials and Wells Fargo, you have you have uncertainties about it. Look at another one that you might like better. I would buy MasterCard before Wells Fargo, for example. And there you go. There's my financial allocation. Can More you, than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> give me just 15 seconds on why MasterCard. Why MasterCard? We've talked about it before, but their main competitor is cash. They don't carry any credit risk whatsoever. They're a transaction business, a recurring transaction, and I use my MasterCard six, seven, eight times a day. All right. <laughs> All right. That's an exaggeration, but, you know. <laughs> Jeff Fisher, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Check out Motley Fool Money Radio Show this weekend. Speaking of cash, our guest is David Woolman from Wired Magazine. His new book is The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society. There you go. That's Motley Fool Money. Wow. On iTunes and on radio stations across America. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. Johnny on the spot with the research <laughs> about Joy Global. I'm Chris <laughs> Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. 